Splashdown. From Tranquility Base to Taurus Litro to the tranquil waters of the Pacific, the latest chapter of NASA's journey to the moon comes to a close. Orion, back on Earth. Unofficial splashdown time, 11.40 and 30 seconds a.m. Central Time at a mission elapsed time of 25 days, 10 hours, 54 minutes, 50 seconds. That's unofficial. Splashing down off the coast of Baja, California. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello there, and welcome back. That was the silky voice of NASA's Rob Navias just a few hours before this episode went live. The flight part of the Orion capsule's trip out to and beyond the moon and back is complete. Now the effort is to continue collecting and analyzing performance data, and that's because the Artemis 1 mission is a shakedown mission, and that means it's an uncrewed test to see if Boeing's capsule and the United Launch Alliance's space launch system is really ready to take astronauts back to the moon. And to put this into historical context, the same day as this splashdown, well, it marks 50 years, five decades, since NASA's last landing on the moon. While it's important to mark this news, This episode is not about NASA's Artemis One mission, but it is about two companies that individually just created separate defense business lines that could challenge the prime space contractors in that sector, like Boeing and ULA. You know them already. They are Peter Beck's Rocket Lab and Elon Musk's SpaceX. Rocket Lab's founder is from New Zealand, and his company is publicly traded, which for our purposes means it's legally required to be a lot more transparent about its money and its plans. SpaceX's founder is from South Africa, and he's kept his company privately held, so that means it decides what to actually reveal. Now, we're pretty lucky this week because we've got Rocket Lab's Peter back. But before we hear from him, I wanted some outside views for context from both the finance and defense perspectives. And for that, I spoke with Quilty Analytics' Caleb Henry and then with the Mitchell Institute's Chris Stone. First up is Caleb, who is going to explain what these moves mean organizationally and to the market. Here's our conversation. Hi, Caleb. Welcome to The Downlink. Hey, thanks for having me. Before we start talking about what's going on with Rocket Lab and SpaceX, this is the first time you're on the podcast. So take a minute and introduce yourself. Yeah, so happy to be here. I think I am the third Quilty member to join the podcast. So it is my honor to uh, give us the triple crown there. Uh, I have been at Quilty Analytics for two years now. I'm on the research side, so I help write reports about public companies in the industry and all sorts of topics across the the satellite space sector. Before being here, I worked as a journalist for seven years about the private space sector, Uh, a lot of that dealing with satellite telecommunications, also remote sensing, and then the whole ecosystem of companies that surrounds that. So building, launching, talking to satellites. So in the past week, Specifically on December 1st and then on December 2nd, Rocket Lab and SpaceX made some announcements. 
about how they're changing their business approach to defense. Tell us, what were those announcements and why did they grab headlines? Well, at least SpaceX did. But yeah, what's what's this all about? Sure. So SpaceX announced a new derivation of their Starlink program, which they call StarShield, which is focused on providing their sort of constellation services specifically to government and defense customers. And then Rocket Lab, excuse me, Rocket Lab announced their own defense business line that is also focused more specifically on creating products and services from their pool of products. So their electron launch vehicle, future neutron launch vehicle, and their space services, the spacecraft and spacecraft components that they build for the defense sector. So let's start with SpaceX. Isn't this establishing a beachhead in a handful of markets? I mean, the announcement includes launch, of course, but also communications, geospatial intelligence, hosted payloads, ground segment, operations. It's like Apple just for space. I mean, what's going on here? It's certainly broader than anything that SpaceX has done before. Uh, if you would ask me, you know, I, I would honestly say that this is not a surprise. Uh, and the reason that it's not a surprise is if you look at the, the rationale that SpaceX had when they announced Starlink five, six years ago, the reason for doing it wasn't that they wanted to be the world's best internet service provider. Like they didn't just decide that was going to be a cool new business to do. What they realized was that the launch sector was not going to provide enough revenue it wasn't going to give enough money to fund their Mars ambitions. Uh, and so they looked at adjacencies. Where could they expand uh, and increase their total addressable market? Uh, satellite broadband specifically to consumers presented a huge you know, multi-billion dollar market opportunity for them. Uh, and so they chose to pursue that with a, a constellation. Um, but when you look again at that mindset of we need to expand so that we make more money, use our adjacencies, fund Mars. Uh, it made perfect sense to expect them to expand beyond consumer into other arguably more demanding customer sets, which they have, like connectivity to maritime, connectivity to aircraft, connectivity to defense customers. And now what we're seeing is they get this even broader expansion where not only are they offering telecommunications, but even beginning to venture into geospatial intelligence and offering hosted payloads where they'll carry a sensor or some other box from a customer, tack it onto a Starlink satellite and let it use the orbit or the power, maybe even some of the frequencies from their Starlink in order to provide a separate service. What about Rocket Lab's plan? Again, it also includes launch, satellite separation systems, solar energy, and satellite operations. And for those who don't know, unlike SpaceX, Rocket Lab is a publicly traded company that's listed on the NASDAQ. What direction is CEO Peter Beck taking the company? So something that Beck said that was really interesting earlier this year, it was sort of a quip during one of their investor days. He said that uh, if given the chance, really Rocket Lab should have been named uh, Space Lab. And if you you take that to its logical conclusion, Rocket Lab now makes more money from its space hardware business than it does launch. The company, after going public, conducted a series of acquisitions. They bought companies that make solar panels, that make reaction wheels, and they took a lot of their own internal competencies 
and use that to create their photon spacecraft chassis. Um, they now do a lot more than just rockets. So seeing Rocket Lab expand into the defense business more aggressively uh, is not a surprise because it's pretty common for space companies to, to do that. You know, they want to serve as many customers as possible, and there aren't a whole lot that go to space. Uh, but one of the ones that everybody knows uh, are governments. So for them to expand into the defense sector was sort of a, a natural evolution. Uh, and especially as they expand from New Zealand over to the U.S., you know, I think around the world, the U.S. government is recognized as being one of the largest spenders on space. Uh, and Rocket Lab already made no secret of the fact that they intend to compete uh, against SpaceX and ULA and any other contenders for the National Security Space Launch Program the phase three program in 2024. Uh, so it looks like a pragmatic move on their part to one, position themselves for that contract and two, to court more intensely the government for all manner of space services, whether it's launch, satellite manufacturing, space as a service, or whatever DOD is interested in. Now, these announcements came basically within 24 hours of each other. Rocket Lab announced on December 1st, SpaceX announced on December 2nd. How have these two announcements been received? I mean, it feels kind of odd, no? I mean, the timing of them, I think competitors do always watch when each other are announcing you know, big programs or things like that. That said, I really doubt that this was some sort of coordinated thing. You know, if you look more broadly, it's not at all uncommon for space companies to have a defense arm of some sort. You know, even just within the launch sector, Virgin Orbit has had Box Space, their federal government division, for many years. Firefly had a division called Firefly Black that was also focused on the defense market, federal government, which they later rebranded to Firefly STS, Space Transportation Services. And then if you look across the host of satellite communications companies and geospatial intelligence companies, you'll find very often specific arms of companies where their whole purpose is to focus on the government. You know, Intelsat has Intelsat General, Planet has Planet Federal, got SES government. Uh, it's just not uncommon. Uh, so you know, what we're seeing here is just a, an increased push uh, where the timing might seem odd because it's bunched together, but it's really a fairly normal thing for space companies to do. And they do this because defense customers have needs that are oftentimes very specific uh, and differ from the commercial sector. So in some ways, defense customers can be more demanding. There's just loads more paperwork that they have to do for starters. And then when they actually have the service, uh, government customers often uh, have more requests, you know, maybe they want uh, a more demanding launch to a higher orbit, or they want a spacecraft with far more encryption than a private commercial one. Uh, maybe they want it to be more responsive, or faster, and have more bells and whistles that private customers just aren't willing to spend for. Uh, and all of those needs, you know, when you've got a really needy customer who's also willing to pay more, they tend to get a tailored service. And that's what we're seeing. But didn't it, these announcements, especially the SpaceX one, kind of cause some concern amongst investors? I think because of the 
breadth of the Starshield announcement, it has certainly caused concern amongst the space industry, specifically wondering, is SpaceX going to become an even bigger competitor? You know, they were SpaceX was never in the geospatial sector before. You know, I think they have done some work on uh, missile warning satellites for the Space Development Agency. But beyond that, SpaceX was in launch, SpaceX was in satellite internet. And so to see them expand into remote sensing, to see them expand into space as a service, um, to see them willing to host you know, third-party payloads, you know, they threatened to become a very big competitor to other companies who provide those kinds of services. Uh, and I think the biggest reason for that is just the scale that SpaceX has. You know, at this point, roughly half of all spacecraft in orbit belong, half of them belong to SpaceX. It's SpaceX, and then it's the rest of the world. Uh, so when you're up against a competitor like that, or even think you might be up against a competitor like that, you have to take it very seriously. Caleb, thank yes. you so much for your time. <laughs> Glad to be here. Our next guest, Chris Stone, he focuses on a very different kind of competition, the sort that is coming from China and to a lesser degree, Russia, as well as Iran and North Korea. Here's Chris's take on the Rocket Lab and SpaceX announcements. Hi, Chris. Thank you for making the time to come back on the podcast. No problem. Thanks very much. You know how I roll. Could you take a moment and introduce yourself? Sure. I am Christopher Stone. I am the Senior Fellow for Space Studies at the Mitchell Institute's Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence in Washington, D.C., and uh, I am a career space uh, professional going back uh, about 20 years. I've uh, been in D.C. about 12 of those years doing various things, and uh, I'm also the author of a, of a small book called Reversing the Tau, a framework for a credible space deterrence. And uh, again, happy to be here. If you remember earlier this week, you and I had a chat about the recent announcements made by SpaceX and Rocket Lab. You know, they're opening dedicated offices or establishing a subsidiary focused on defense contracts. And you had a different take. And I'd love for you to share that. Sure. Um, one of the reasons why I believe you're seeing a lot of companies, uh, especially new space companies, bringing themselves into the national security market with subsidiary companies or sub-companies, such as Starshield uh, and, and Rocket Lab, and even Virgin Orbit has one, is because a lot of the companies, uh, not all of them, have uh, their parent companies have foreign investment and foreign leadership. And so if that company wants to have access and sponsorships for um, U.S. national security or intelligence community projects, you, you have to have the decision-making pieces of those companies be U.S. citizens. And when you do that, it makes it a whole lot easier to deal with uh, facility clearances for uh, SCIF, which are basically for for you know top secret rooms that you can do that kind of work and design and 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 all that. Have the facilities you need to do that kind of work. Um, it also gives you um, the ability to get sponsored by federal governments for projects. It helps you deal with with other issues related to what's called in a vertical integration. And what that means is, this is another thing that, another reason why people are doing that is because SpaceX has kind of been an example of something that that the federal government's become a fan of, which is either 
a company that everything is based in-house and there's not a lot of second and third tier supply chain subcontractors. The traditional industry typically has gone like the Lockheed's and Boeing's have typically operated as a prime contractor, sort of a system integrator, and then they, they farm out the pieces of their components to other companies. And that can add cost, it can add time. Um, whereas if people want to have total control of, you know, soup to nuts, you know, or, or, or cradle to grave of whatever the project is, then they can do it in-house. So Elon's been doing that. Uh, as you see, their spacecraft, their satellites, their launch vehicles, everything is built in-house. And now that they're branching off into StarShield, this gives them the ability to take some of the early partnerships that they've been doing with Space Development Agency and others for tracking layer and things of that sort to be able to maximize uh, what they've been building and what's been proven to be effective in, in Ukraine and elsewhere. Um, one other bit of information about the, the, the clearance pieces uh, that sometimes can be a barrier to entry for, for startups and it's a little easier for companies like these that are just, instead of starting something new and trying to get into the military sphere, they've kind of already had a public-private partnership with the government, like NASA, and then they work over a little bit of DOD, and then they work a little bit of foreign commercial, and they have that experience. Startups don't necessarily have that that easy easy going. They have to deal with the overclassification and the cost and and things of that sort. So this is a this is a smart move. Um, they they like working also with smaller companies. The federal government's been looking at all sorts of ways of dealing with smaller companies where you, you have less layers to deal with in order to get things approved. It's a lot faster with the decision cycles and things like that. So those are just some of the things that 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 the federal government is trying for to try to streamline and go faster, as they've been saying with um, with, with their acquisition programs for military space. You know what, you were also um, brought up another point that, you know, if they also are working with the Department of Defense, in some ways, it's easier for them to get the kinds of licensing that they need for both sides or all sides of the house, whether it be civil space, commercial space or defense space. I mean, SpaceX, you know, did recently attain partial licensing for its Gen 2 Starlink business, but it's partial. I mean, it was for 7,500 satellites, which is no small thing. I get that, but they were mm -hmm. looking for roughly 30,000. Um, and the FCC is still reviewing that. I mean, if they have this defense sort of branch and if those satellites were say used for StarShield, I mean, would that actually help in the licensing process? Well, um, the thing to keep in mind is that every operator, whether commercial, purely commercial or civil or military, they all have to get essentially the same license processes. It just depends on which piece. Now, the FCC, at least until the Department of Commerce pushed back and, and kind of sees what they believe is their purview for mission authorization, as it's, as it's sometimes referred to, the FCC adds things like, you know, how long can your satellite be in orbit? When should you deorbit? Um, what's your debris mitigation plan? All for stuff that their prime responsibility is making sure that they're using the proper frequencies and they're they're using that in a responsible way that follows their guidelines, federal law, and ITU best practices. However, if you're doing launch and landing, in the case of SpaceX and others, you know, that's the FAA. If you're doing something with optics or looking at things either toward the earth like Maxar or Digital Globe 
or in the space uh, for various purposes, whether it's a, a probe or something. And which, have by to go... the way, Maxar has got the um, authorization to look not just down at the Earth, but to actually look in orbit at other right, things that... that are on orbit. Right, for like space amino awareness type of missions. And so when you have that, there are these processes that the interagency, the DOD is part of it, the intelligence community is part of it, NOAA is part of it. Um, all these these entities that have equity in in different pieces of the space pie, policy wise, acquisition rule wise, they all have a say in it. And each of these agencies, some of them have licensing authority, and some of them just provide feedback and and decisions on that. So, in a way, doing this kind of a company does streamline it a little bit because you know that the purpose of those missions are to achieve a military or intelligence objective. And so when you know that's the objective, you don't have to wonder what it can accidentally be used for or potentially sold to somebody else. You're, you're building something strictly for U.S. needs. And as a result of that, um, the, the government, the DOD, whoever has a lot of say in that. So in the case of SpaceX, they have their Starlinks, which is proven pretty effective in Ukraine. Um, they're using it for airlines. I, I read somewhere they're going for airline broadband and even some places in, in rural areas. So they have a lot of civil and commercial application. And But they've also been partnering and they have a contract along with L3 Harris for the space tracking layer tranche, uh, initial tranche of those satellites. And part of the agreement was to build satellites that are dedicated as well as having potentially hosted payloads on on their commercial system. So that's something that's that that concept of hosted payloads is not new, but it's an idea that's been floated around by a lot of people that, hey, why build your own satellites, US government, if the commercial sector is going to have hundreds of these things that are operating in similar areas that you're interested in operating? Why not consolidate that and, and leverage the commercial off the shelf rather than doing all the development yourself? And so this, as well as other transaction authorities and other ways of doing things differently than the old traditional, you know, cost plus contracts with multiple subcontractors scattered all over the place, um, is something that government is trying to get away from and toward these these smaller smaller companies with 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 other other opportunities and other objectives. So I think this is a smart move on, on that part. And speaking of, you know, making things easier in the sense of contracting, I mean, both companies are basically offering space services in the defense sector, um, you know, to the Department of Te Defense through these two new entities that are cradle to grave in, in the sense of, you know, from launch to, you know, building the satellite itself, to operating the satellite, to ground, you know, the ground uh, station network. Is this the kind of thing that the Department of Defense is looking for for space? I, I think so, especially when you're when you hear all the lingo about not just res the whole resiliency push, but also just to have, have different options. Now, small satellites have been kind of a popular thing of late. You know, ten years ago, if you had asked most of the senior leaders in the Pentagon if small stats were going to be as big as they are now, um, they would have told you. And I know for a fact because they did tell people like me and others who were saying we need to get ahead of this. That you know, there's no way that it can do the kind of things that a large, you know, optical spy satellite can do or communication satellite can do. Um, but now they're they're kind of becoming sort of the thing for a lot of people. Whether that's good or bad, that's that's not the issue. But that's just that's kind of where people are going. 
And so you've got different options based on size and orbit and mission set. So Rocket Lab is definitely has smaller rockets than, say, SpaceX. SpaceX has the ability to flex up to heavy and super heavy here soon. Um, and Rocket Lab is going to be building their neutron rocket, which is going to be bigger than Electron. But they have the ability to build their own satellites. They're wanting to build their own rockets. They're wanting to have multiple launch sites, just like SpaceX is doing. And that that vertical integration, uh, that that in everything in house model, seems to be paying dividends. And it just it gives a lot. It, it streamlines things in a way because you're not having to track down a whole lot of different things. And from an industrial base capacity, if you're analyzing the health of the base, it makes it difficult for those, like I mentioned, who don't have the resources to do that, it makes it harder for them to compete. But there are a lot of other companies that have started in the new space world um, that are going after this. And I think you'll probably see this become a more popular model in the near future uh, as it stays and stays successful. Chris, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Anytime. And lastly, and most importantly, Rocket Lab's founder and CEO, Peter Beck. He's here in the United States for the company's first ever launch from U.S. soil, which he says is just the first step in a much bigger plan to offer comprehensive end-to-end space services to defense, civil, and commercial customers. Here's our conversation. Hi, Peter. Welcome to The Downlink. It's great to have you on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. Peter, you're a legend in the launch industry, but like all my guests, I'd like you to take a moment and introduce yourself. Sure. Well, that's, you're, you're very kind. Um, so uh, my name is Peter Beck. I started a company called Rocket Lab uh, in 2006 in uh, a little country down in, the, down in New Zealand. And uh, since 2006, uh, we started building uh, little rockets and then they got bigger and bigger. And then uh, finally, we, uh, we launched our first orbital program called the Neutron um, in 2014. And since then, we've, uh, we've gone on to launch many, many rockets. I think number 33 is on the pad right now. Uh, and, um, and as well as that, uh, we also build spacecraft um, and uh, we've got other large rockets in development. So a short, short 15 second summary of, of 15 years. And speaking of the launch pad, you know, these are some pretty exciting times for Rocket Lab. Revenue continues to exceed market expectation. And now the first launch from U.S. soil from NASA's Wallops Flight Facility in Virginia. This is a first for Rocket Lab. And it's also just the beginning. What does Rocket Lab have planned for the Wallops location? Yeah, no, Wallops is really special for us. So um, we, we've got we've got two launch pads down in, in New Zealand, and um, you know to date that's where we've launched every electron vehicle from. Uh, the Virginia pad was primarily um, stood up for our U.S. government customers for rapid on-call demand from U.S. soil. Uh, e- even though we're a, a U.S. company, um, like I said, most of our launches to date have been done out of out of New Zealand. Uh, so this this launch pad is is really you know the, the first time that that we'll be launching out of out of U.S. soil. And I guess what's more more important is that it's created a really unique capability for the nation. So as I mentioned, rapid on call, dedicated small launch, you know, doesn't really exist in in America today. So this this new capability is is really important for the nation in that respect. 
And how important is it to have this presence and this capability on the East Coast? I mean, it certainly puts the company closer to the defense industry and to NASA. I mean, those who have payloads, you know, in the commercial sector and needing a ride like, you know, this upcoming launch like Hawkeye 360. I mean, how, is, mm. how important is it to the company to be here? Yeah, it's, it's, it's naturally important. I mean, I would say that to date, you know, we've flown just about every every customer you can imagine. Um, we've flown a, a number of NRO missions, for example, and, and Space Force missions and DARPA missions. So we've flown just about every commercial customer and, and every government customer you, you can imagine, not not just from the US, but around the world. But, you know, having having this launch site uh, in, you know, on the East Coast is, is certainly, um, you know, it's it's it makes it easier for, for, for customers to not have to travel to New Zealand, obviously. But also, you know, I can't underestimate, you know, the importance of having this as a, a rapid call-up site, which is different to you know, different to the rest of our sites. And if I'm not mistaken, I mean, this site is going to be getting bigger as well, is it not? Yes, much bigger. So, um, so you know, it's not just a home for uh, Electron. It will be the home for a Neutron launch vehicle, which is, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a large vehicle. It's a sort of a, a Falcon 9 equivalent, uh, 13 tons to low Earth orbit. So, uh, you know, it's a much, much more significant program and vehicle flying. And in the defense sector, your company just announced the creation of a new subsidiary geared towards winning DOD business. And it's not mm. just about launch. What's the name of the company and what space services is it offering? Yeah, so it's called Rocket Lab National Security. And, and it's really um, an, an internal division within the company set up to, to really address the needs of the, the, you know, the, the DOD and national security uh, community. Um, look, we've 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 done a lot with them, you know, with that community since the, you know the very beginning of Rocket Lab. So this is it's it's not new customers to us. Um, but having having kind of a dedicated unit of 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 folks and uh, an organisation that is kind of slightly decoupled from the wider parent is really useful. Um, you know, we can continue to move very quickly and nimbly in you know the wider company, but. Um, for these really important national security missions that require certain levels of, um, you know, mission assurance and things like that, it's it's good to have that, you know, that separate entity to address those more directly. Will Rocket Lab now seek to build classified satellites for the DoD? Um, not not necessarily. I mean, um, you know, we 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 do do work in in that in that realm um, across uh, you know across a number of areas. I mean, our space systems division. Uh, you know, has a, a large component business where we've been a provider to um, the national security, you know, community for, you know, for a very long time. You know, one of our acquisitions has been providing, you know, that community products for the last 25 years. So, yeah, although it's a, it's a new name and all the rest of it, uh, it it's, it's really a continuation of, of what we've done for a very long time. And, you know, an analyst whispered a question into my ear, and that is, with all the acquisitions, you know, Solero, Planetary Systems, and there are others, mm -hmm. you're certainly tooled up to provide white glove space as a service. But in order to keep all those engines running, you need not only a variety of revenue streams, but a variety of customers and not just defense. How are you balancing between commercial and government? I mean, what's the split? Yeah, yeah. So we like to generally maintain a 50-50 uh, split and ratio. Um, that, that, that works well for us. Um, you know, commercial customers have the advantage of being very nimble and very quick, uh, whereas government customers, you know, have much longer timeframes and much more, generally much more demanding requirements. 
Um, so you put those two together and it fills out a, either a launch manifest or a, or a satellite manufacturing manifest or even a component level manifest pretty, uh, pretty nicely. And, you know, we, we enjoy, we enjoy the, you know, the government customers that have very difficult and unique requirements. That, that's where we really uh, excel is, is the things that other people kind of look at and go, how on earth can that be done? Those are the things that, um, that we generally excel at. And lastly, you know, this is going to sound a little weird, but I just have to ask, are you coordinating announcements with SpaceX? I mean, they announced the creation of their Starshield defense business line roughly 24 hours after Rocket Lab. I mean, is that really a coincidence? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's certainly from our side, it it would be. Um, But I mean, we've been talking about an end-to-end space systems business for, you know, a couple of years now. And, you know, we're not just a launch company. We're not just a satellite company. Uh, when you put those two kind of things together, you're able to deliver services in a much more efficient and cost-effective uh, way than, and, than you would independently. And not, not just that, but you're able to deliver approaches and, and systems that wouldn't be, able, wouldn't be possible if you didn't own those other elements. For example, you know, if you're building a satellite that only is intended to launch on a specific launch vehicle, and that, that specific launch vehicle happened to be an electron, you know, it's, it's, it's the smoothest ride to orbit. So you can really optimize the, you know, the satellite for a very low, um, you know, low force environment. Whereas if you had to design a satellite to fit on any rocket, then it would be, you know, a much more, uh, much more complicated task and you'd make a lot more trades. So, you know, we, we've been doing this for a while. We think that, and, you know, you can, you can look back for many years and you can see us talking about the fact that, we think the large space companies of the future are going to be companies that have launched, also build spacecraft, and, and also have applications under their under the same umbrella. Because you combine all those things together, you know, generally space is one just giant engineering compromise. And if you can remove as many of those compromises as you as you can, you know, by having so many of these systems that work together, then you end up with a better product for sure. Peter, thank you so much for your time and the best of wishes for the launch. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.